Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Wella. Uh, verse 7 and 8. Um, we're going to start off with verse 7 and 8. So scripture reads like this. And when you pray... Today we'll be focusing on prayer in the life of a believer. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the heathens do or the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And stay there for a moment, but I do want to comment on that. Simply put, prayer ceases to be true prayer when the mouth is more active than the mind is engaged. Prayer ceases to be true prayer when the mouth is more active than the mind is engaged. Sometimes we get into a routine of a prayer. You ever get into a routine? Sometimes we have our routine. We pray for our food. Heavenly Father, bless this food. Make it nourish in our body. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? That's great. Nothing wrong with establishing great habits, but that's the concept of praying a prayer that doesn't have an engaged mind in it. You don't want to make that your prayer life. So make sure that your mouth is not just engaged, but your mind. What kind of God would God be if he was more impressed by the mechanics and statistics of our prayer? What if God wanted you to be in prayer for an hour? And that was the way he measured whether you were really hungry for him or not. It's not about the length of time or not about the amount of words, but it's about it's about the heart. Are you with me? If he was more willing to answer the more words we gave. Then the idea is that we would be a people that would engage with our mouths and not with our minds. And therefore, we would be a people more of a mechanical relationship than an intimate one. You understand that? The goal is to go from a mechanical Christian to a relational, intimate Christian. Are you with me? Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus opens up the idea of prayer. He opens up the discussion of prayer by giving to his disciples a model prayer. And if you remember, the prayer starts like this. Our Heavenly Father, or our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. So this morning, we are going to take a look at that model prayer, and we are going to break it down. Hopefully, by the time you leave here this morning, you'll be able to understand what Jesus meant with our model prayer. Now, let me open to you with a quote by a man named John Calvin. He says this, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him. God knows everything, so when we pray, we don't tell him something he don't know. We don't inform him about things that he does not know or excite him about the things that he's supposed to accomplish. We don't urge him as though he's reluctant. On the contrary, when believers pray, we pray in order that we may arouse ourselves to seek him. That we may exercise our faith in meditating on his promises. That they may relieve ourselves from our anxieties by pouring them out. In the bosom of God. In a word, we pray so that we can declare that from him alone, our hope and our expectation comes. 
both for ourselves and for others. By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are instructing God. You with me? Let's continue. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read 9 through 13. Jesus says this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also forgive in our debts, debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this section is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And it's referenced, the Lord's Prayer is referenced in both Matthew and in Luke. Luke says, when you pray, say this. Matthew says, pray like this. Now I want you to know, this means that the Lord's Prayer can either be a model or or a form to follow. So we can either repeat the prayer or we can use the prayer as a model to pray our own prayer, right? So Luke says, when you pray, say this. In other words, repeat it. It's okay to repeat this prayer. But then Matthew says, when you pray, and then he breaks down the prayer. So you could either use this prayer to recite and repeat or use this prayer as an outline for your own prayers. Are you with me on that? I want to make sure I made that clear. Now, the Lord's Prayer can be expressed in three sections. First, the prayer talks about God and his power. The second section talks about God's glory. And then the third section talks about our needs. God's power. God's glory and our needs. Are you with me? So we're going to break this today in sections. And this morning we'll start with the first section, which talks about God's person and his power. Jesus opens the prayer by saying, our Father in heaven. Notice Jesus doesn't say it's not my Father. He doesn't say it's the Father, but he says it's our Father. Implying that God is not just concerned about the well-being of an individual, but he is a community God. He is a God that is concerned by all believers, all people, everywhere. He's not just my God. It's not just the God, but it's our God, my Father, our Father. Are you with me? When we enter into a place of prayer... This is an amazing reminder to us that our Christian walk is just not about ourselves. But God is our, all of our Father. Now there's two major points we can pull from this opening phrase. And these points are about his person and his power. We have a personal God. Our God is a personal God. You see, sometimes we over-theorize God, don't we? Sometimes those nerds that are in the building like myself, we love to talk about theology. And we love to break down the scriptures into nicely constructed doctrines. And we argue over doctrines and theology at times. We sometimes limit our God to a classroom of study as if he is some sort of lab rat. Yet, God is a father, and his divine fatherhood reminds us that he is a personal God. And he's just as personal as we are to our friends and to our family. And his ultimate desire is not to be studied by us, but to be with us. His ultimate desire is not your ultimate destination as a Christian is not to be committed to a Sunday morning service. 
That's your, for some of us, it's been your first step. But I want you to know we have a father, and our father's ultimate desire is to not be studied by us, but to be with us. Are you with us? That's why Jesus says when you pray, go into a room and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in what? Secret. Now I realize that we live in a time where fatherhood is under attack. Isn't it interesting how Jesus uses fatherhood? Our father. He could have said our mother, our daughter, our son, our friend. But in this moment, Jesus calls God our father. Now, fatherhood is under attack. You may be asking, well, how so is it under attack? It could be under attack in your life personally. Maybe some of you in here this morning have been personally hurt by your own human fathers. In fact, I don't know a person who hasn't. If your father is human, at some point in time, he's probably let you down. But maybe some of us have been hurt or wounded by our fathers. Or how about this? Maybe some of you in here have been influenced by the, per, the some of you have been influenced by our current political climate. Down with the patriarchy. The feminist movement who declares down with the patriarchy. And believe it or not, it's not just a fight for equality. It's also an attack on men. You know, I'm all for equality, but not the purpose of putting someone down or stepping on top of somebody to get it. And I want to let you know that Jesus says, our father, and that sometimes it's hard for us to understand this prayer. I understand God as a father because either personally the fathers we've experienced have let us down or we are part of a political climate or a culture that seems to look down on fatherhood. It seems to look down on those things. Are you with me? But as Christians, we should know that the God we serve is not a monster who terrifies us with cruelty. Nor is he the kind of father that we have either read about or personally experienced. He's neither absent nor abusive. He is neither a liar nor a drunkard. But God himself fulfills ideal fatherhood by loving and caring for his creation. God is personal. But I, will, I also want you to know he is powerful. Our God is not only a God that's good, but he's a God that's great. When Jesus says our father who is in heaven, he's not just referring to God's residence. But he's referring to his authority and his power as creator and ruler of all things. He's referring to his majesty, his government, his governing authority. What Jesus is doing is helping us to understand a radical truth about God. When we go to him in prayer, we are getting access to the one who combines fatherly love with heavenly power. Man, I'm going to say that again because that preaches to me. When we go to God in prayer, we are going to the one. And we are getting access to the one who combines fatherly love with heavenly power. What a concept of love and strength. Now here's a very important truth. Jesus is not teaching us prayer etiquette. He's simply giving us this truth. 
But before we pray, it's a great idea to spend some time focusing on who God is in person and in power. So the next time you step into your prayer closet or the next time you pray, and before you get into your prayer, why don't you focus on how good he is and how powerful he is? Are you with me? Now watch. When we dwell on who he is, we are then prepared to pray a prayer in its proper order. When we think about a personal, loving, yet powerful God, our prayers are affected in two ways. First, God's concerns become priority. And secondly, our own needs become a reflection of his heart. When we put God in his proper place, when we think about who God is in person and in power, we then are able to move forward in our prayer and pray in a proper priority. And we first pray about God's concerns, and then we end with our own. Are you with me? This leads us to our second section. God's glory comes first. I want you to notice Jesus' prayer regarding God's glory. Our Father, who art in heaven, and then he says something interesting. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now I want you to take pause there, and I want you to notice three things. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will. Do you see that? Your name, your kingdom, your will. Not my name, my kingdom, or my will. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Those are expressed as concern for God's glory in relation to his name, in relation to his rule, in relation to his will. And if we are to become true disciples of Jesus, then we are always to seek putting God's glory before our own. Now let's break this down for a moment. What do we mean when we say God's name? When it comes to God's name, we're not referring to G-O-D. The essence of what Jesus is praying is not about a combination of letters that make a sound that stand for somebody's name. But we are referring to something that stands for the very person who carries that name. His name is who he is. It's his character. It's his activity. It's his power. It's his word. Likewise, when we pray in the name of Jesus... We are not just reciting a group of letters formed in a way that makes a sound, but we are praying in the power and in the person of the one who carries the name. Because I know a lot of Jesuses, and I'm not praying to them. Are you with me? There's a story in Acts chapter 19. It's a really interesting story, and if you want to take notes, you can go and read it later on your own this week. But it's an interesting story, and it's a about um, some sons of a man named Sceva. And they were traveling, the scripture tells us they were traveling around the countryside and they were encountering demonic evil spirits. And the Bible tells us that they would pray, and as they would pray, they would say this, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they were traveling around the countryside and they were encountering people with demonic, kind of demonic uh, spirits. And they were praying for deliverance over them. And when they would say the prayer, they say, in the name of Jesus, the one in whom Paul preaches. 
<laughs> and then they would say, I command you to come out. Now, one day, they encountered an evil spirit who talked back. How weird would that be? <laughs> talked back, right? Just totally weird, creepy, all the other things. Sure does. One day, they encountered an evil spirit who spoke back to them. And this is what the demonic spirit said. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But I don't know who you are. Can you imagine? In the name of Jesus, the one in which Patty talks about, the one in which Pastor Phil talks about, you know, that name, come out. And matter Jesus, okay, I know Patty, I know Phil, I know Jesus, I don't know you. And the Bible tells us that the man with the evil spirit jumped on them, beat them, and they ran away naked. Now, here's what I want you to know. It's not just about knowing the name, but it's about knowing the name. It's not just about understanding the name, but it's about spending time with the one who carries the name. It's not that you know Bible verses, but it's you know the one who has authored those verses. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're, it's not just this magic genie. Well, I said in the name of Jesus, so it's going to happen. It's walking in and carrying an understanding in and being one who has been affected by the person that carries the letters, that makes a sound, that has that name. Are you with me? So we pray, hallowed be your name, because we honor the one who carries the name. As holy. We honor the one who carries the name as all powerful. We honor the one who carries the name. And we honor him in our own lives. And we honor him in the life of the church. And we honor him in the world. Hallowed be your name. So it says your name. And then the next thing it says your kingdom. What did Jesus mean by God's kingdom? Well, when you hear God's kingdom or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in scripture, you are hearing something that is referring to God's royal or kingly rule. Almost like jurisdiction. You understand that? You know, there's jurisdiction. You're, you know, you're so far, uh, you know, there's the Hayward police. There's a free mouth. Everyone has a jurisdiction. So when you're hearing about God's kingdom, you're hearing about God's power, his jurisdiction. Now, listen. Whether we say it or not, God is already ruling and reigning and absolutely sovereign over nature and history. Yet, when Jesus came, he announced a new and special break in God's kingdom. Listen, Jesus, when he walked this earth, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. To pray God's kingdom, to pray his kingdom come is to pray both that it may grow through the church's witness of Jesus and that it may consummate or come to its fullness when Jesus comes back. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the church to take its rightful place, not on Sunday morning, but in the world. 
If we are going to be a church that is successful and accomplishing the purposes of Christ, it's not going to be a Sunday morning service that we are going to do this. It is going to be when we leave the service. You see, this is a time of empowerment and learning, but when we leave here, we are going to display the rule of the kingdom of God, and we are going to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ by being witnesses of the salvation of God, first in our own lives and how he can influence and love and save others. Are you with me? So when we say your, your kingdom come, we're basically saying the growth of Christ's rule here on earth in the hearts and minds of those who do not believe. So essentially you're praying for the forward movement of the gospel. You're praying for yourself as a disciple to be a light in your work, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your community. You're praying for Inspire Church to be a light in Union City. For that matter, you're praying for all churches everywhere. And most importantly, when you say your kingdom come, your will be done, you're praying for the light of the gospel of Jesus to break out in the darkest parts of the earth. He says, your name, your kingdom, and then he says, your will be done. I love this quote. Listen to this quote. The will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. For it is the will of our Father in heaven who is infinite in knowledge, love, and power. Now pay attention to this. It is therefore folly to resist it and wisdom to discern, desire, and do it. I'm going to say that again. The will of God is good. Some of you need to just remind yourself that. Take some time this week to remind yourself of that before you pray. The will of God is good. It's good for me. In fact, it's the best thing for me. You know, the will of God is acceptable. I receive it wholeheartedly. You know, the will of God is perfect. He knows me intimately. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows me better than my mother. He knows me better than my father. He even knows me better than myself. His will is good. His will is acceptable. His will is perfect. And if it is good, and if it is acceptable, and if it is perfect, then why should I be afraid to be obedient? Why should I be afraid to trust? Why should I be afraid to step out? Why do I have fear? Why do I doubt and lack courage if it is good, acceptable, and perfect? Why do I trust myself? over God and how many times looking back did my hands who are imperfect mess up my decisions and my actions yet I constantly go back to doing that because I have a control problem I have a fear problem I have a trust problem and so before we pray that prayer we must remind ourselves God's will is So take your little list that you made and rip them up. Throw them away. The list that your flesh created. And you sit down and you say, your will be done. Your will be done. I want to do this by the time I'm 30. I want to be with this type of person. Write down the list. God's going to give you the desires of your heart. No, no, don't write it down, Mom. Just kidding. Wait, Mom. There's... 
Don't be right here. We got too many single adults in here. Don't wait. Let me finish before you write your list down. We're going to write a list, but you got to let me finish. <laughs> I know my auntie's got her back. If you said it, I can't even. I'm like, okay, she probably prayed. <laughs> My whole point on this is you'll write a list down, but don't write that list under the influence. You know what I'm saying? Write it under the influence of the Holy Spirit. All right, so we're, 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 we're together. I know my mom believes that. I just want to make sure I got to my point, you know? <laughs> Mark, we're going to have to edit that on the podcast. want to be this by this age I want to have this I want to do this I want to establish this I want to I mean I, look nothing wrong with making great goals and successes but have you prayed what influence did you create that list under is it the influence of material gain is it the influence of wealth is it the influence of what this culture and what the media projects it to you what influence are you under was it under the influence of the flesh or influence of the spirit and we have to remind ourselves, and I have to remind myself, because all of us have to continually make sure we are under the right influence when we make our lists. God's will. Now, before we get into the final section of the Lord's Prayer, I want to draw your attention to the role of the upside-down kingdom that has played in this prayer so far. To pray the Lord's Prayer with sincerity has revolutionary implications. We are constantly under pressure to conform to the self-centeredness of our culture. And when that happens, we become concerned about our own little name, our own little empires, and our own silly will. But in our Christian counterculture, our number one concern is not our name, it's not our kingdom, it's not our will, but God's. And that'll be this, the stark difference between the prayer of an unbeliever and the prayer of a believer. Are you understanding me? Now let's get into the third section. God's, God's power in person, God's glory, and now we get to talk about us, our needs. So I don't even want to talk about that no more. But look, by knowing his place, we understand our place. And it's with humility, after we sought after his desires, that our desires are humbled and they reflect our needs. Instead of a prayer list that reflects our pride, we gain a list that reflects our trust in God. Instead of a prayer list that reflects our pride, we get a prayer list that reflects our trust in God. You know, a lot can be said about a Christian's maturity by looking at their priorities in prayer. And I want you to know that there are three, three things in the needs section that we're going to talk about. It says, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. We're going to talk about bread. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And then we're going to talk about deliverance. Let's talk about what Jesus meant by bread. Now, as much as I'd love to over-spiritualize this. And mean it to refer to reading your Bible. Because in scripture, bread, Bible, we can talk that way. I don't think this is what Jesus was saying. I think Jesus was referring to those needs necessary 
for the preservation of our life. I think God is concerned. The Bible says, and we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about anxiety in a couple of weeks, but the Bible says if he can clothe the lilies and he can feed the birds, how much more so your heavenly father clothes you and feeds you. Why do you worry? Why do you doubt? He says they neither toil nor tarry, and they're fine. Why do you worry? I think Jesus was referring to our needs, those needs that are necessary, food, shelter, water, clothing, our health in general. But on the other end of that, I want you to know that Jesus means our needs and necessities, not our luxuries. It's really important to add that Jesus used the word daily bread. Jesus wants his followers to be conscious of a day-to-day dependence on God for even the most basic of things. This is not just a prayer for the distant future, but it's a prayer for immediate today's nourishment. We must learn to rely on God in prayer daily. He talks about forgiveness, right? He says, forgive, forgive us our debtors as we forgive those who trespass. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Just like food is indispensable to our life, so to the health of the body, forgiveness is indispensable. To the health and life of our soul, forgiveness is indispensable. If you go without eating, if you go without drinking, you could possibly die. If you go without eating and drinking, you will be malnourished. If you go without forgiving, your soul will be strangled to death. The phrase, our debts, refer to our sins because sin is likened to a debt. Because in a debt, we need to repay. But when God forgives, guess what? He drops all the charges and requires no penalty to pay. Well, let me, let me erase that. He drops all the charges, requ- requires penalty of payment, but Jesus puts his blood on the penalty. And it's his blood that paid for your sin. That's why Paul says, therefore, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Honor your bodies in that, in that manner. Your body is not your own. It was bought with a price. Same way, our debtors are those who have sinned against us. It's easier to allow God to forgive us than it is for us to forgive others. Right? And much easier. God, you can forgive me, but I'm not going to forgive Brother Annoying sitting next to me. (laughs) Sister Annoying sitting next to me. (laughs) I want you guys to understand this. Why did God put it in that order? My debts and then forget the debt of others. Listen to this. Once your eyes have been opened to the enormity of your offense against God, the injuries which others have done to you appear pale in comparison. Petty. (laughs) Hashtag petty. Now listen. If you find it hard to forgive someone, start learning to pray for them. If it's hard for you to forgive them face to face, if it's hard for you to even be around somebody, then here's a thing I would say. Start forgiving them in prayer. Start praying for them. There's somebody you absolutely hate right now. Somebody you absolutely, man, you have been hurt. 
you have been wounded. They have violated you and taken advantage of you. You do not see how you could ever forgive them in your life. And you find it impossible. And you even are doubting this Christian thing because, God, if I have to forgive someone, there's one person I want to do it. Here's what I want to say. Start to pray for them. Start simple. The more you pray for them, the more more your God will soften your heart. You with me? Forgiveness. And finally, he says, deliver us from evil. The prayer ends with a powerful plea. Deliver us from evil. Now, there's three points I want to make here. I think it could be best said, deliver us from the evil one. It's Satan that we need delivering from. Like I just said, deliver us from the evil one. It's important to understand it's not God but the devil who tempts God's people to sin. And so it's the devil from whom we need rescuing from. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we are praying, Lord, deliver us from the enemy, from Satan's hands, who tempts us and wants to bring us into a place of sin. He tempts me with drunkenness. He tempts me with different things in my life. He tempts me with, um, he tempts me with um, lust. He tempts me with getting high. He tempts me, can I preach a little bit? He tempts me with doing things and crossing lines and boundaries that I know God has lovingly set before me. He, this is the enemy is tempting me. God, provide a way of an escape. Empower me. Help me to overcome because it is the enemy that is behind this temptation. It's Satan we need delivering from. Number two, and our prayer is not a prayer to avoid, for it's impossible to avoid temptation. Have you ever walked through the mall? If you want to avoid temptation, you have to lock yourself in a closet, close the lights, close, but then even there, you're stuck with your brain. It's a prayer not to avoid, but to overcome. Are you with me? I want you to know scripture teaches us that trial and temptation are good for you. It's good to encounter them. Scripture teaches us, in fact, that when they do occur, to count them as joy. How can I be joyful when I'm going through a storm? How can I be joyful when I'm experiencing temptation? God, you must be crazy. This is not a joyful time in my life. It's not a great time. I am sad. I am down and out. I feel frustrated. How do I count this as joy? Well, it's real simple. God says you count it joy, not because of the temptation or not because of the storm, but because the temptation and the storm are being used to produce something inside of you. It's producing something in you. And therefore, I am joyful, not because it's happening to me, but when I come out of it, I am going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Your Christianity is not an opportunity to go into a space where nothing ever happens to you. Ask some Christians. In fact, sometimes you give your heart to the Lord. It looks like it gets harder than easier. Temptations don't automatically stop. Storms don't stop, but we count it as joy because we understand that God is, there is a production. You know what's so crazy is that even what Satan tries to do against us works for us. Isn't that crazy? Even what Satan does to harm us, God turns around for his glory. Trial and temptation are good for us. 
God does not teach us how to be escape artists, but he teaches us how to go through. He doesn't teach us how to escape. He teaches us how to go through. Can I get an amen for somebody going through something right now? Anybody going through something right now? Anybody want to run away right now? Come on. You stop clapping right now. I get it. But anyone want to run escape? Everyone's like, come on. Yeah, I'm going through it. Anyone want to run away? <laughs> little silent, little down low clap. <laughs> I used to do that. You know, the pastor would be preaching and say, hey, anybody going through anything? You raise your hand. I'm just like down here. I am. God, you see. That's all that matters. You see it. Put your little pinky up. Scratch your eye. <laughs> I raised my hand. Technically, that was a raising of a hand. Technically. <laughs> what am I doing? Okay, let me get back on track. <coughs> he doesn't teach us to escape it. I want to tell you something. When you go through a storm, or even if you fail on a temptation, you know the first thing that comes to your mind is to run away. In fact, script, that's been the beginning. The first man and the first woman, when they found out they made a mistake, what did they do? They hid. They ran and they hid from God. But the prayer we're praying is more about learning to be overcomers than avoiders. In fact, it's bad theology to start thinking that just because you're a Christian, I said this, all of a sudden you're going to be immune to temptation, to trial, and to tragedy. You see, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the existence of problems, but that a Christian receives the power to preserve, the power to overcome, and the, powerful, the power to gain something powerful when experiencing problems. Finally, we need to run from Satan. We need not run. We need to be delivered from Satan. We need to overcome temptation and fear. We need to overcome and not avoid. And finally, number three, our God is greater. The, the, the prayer should be paraphrased like this. Do not allow us to be led in temptation that overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. These words that Jesus gave us to pray point to the reality that no matter how strong we think we are, we are no match for Satan. He is too strong, and you are too weak to stand up to him on your own. But we have a heavenly father who's greater than Satan and can deliver us when we call on his name. Here's the power of this section of the Lord's Prayer. It covers all our human need, material, spiritual, and moral. Our daily bread, our forgiveness of sins, and our deliverance from the evil one. Every time we pray this prayer, we are expressing our dependency on God in every area of our human life. Now, here's a great nugget regarding this last portion. If you look closely, you'll see the Trinity at work in your prayers. The Trinity is at work since it's through the Father's creation and providence that we receive our daily bread. See that? And it's through the Son's atoning death through his blood that we receive forgiveness. You see that? And it's through the Holy Spirit's indwelling power that we're able to overcome the evil one, temptation, and sin. You guys see that? The worship team might have you come up. I'm probably going to move this down. In fact, Christopher, can you help me out? Thank you, sir. We'll get ready to close here. I want to conclude um, by making a few comments. 
when Jesus talked about prayer, he said, don't be like the hypocrites. He was referring to the Pharisees. They pray, right, and they want everyone to see them pray. Then he also says, don't be like the heathens or the Gentiles, for they use a lot of words. So the error of the hypocrite is selfishness. Even in their own prayers, they're obsessed with their own self-image. They want people to see how holy they are. And the error of the heathen is mindlessness. They just babble. They don't think about what they're saying because they're only concerned with volume and content. There are other religions that will teach you to meditate and um, back and forth, back and forth. And you just, it's just psychobabble. That is mindless. That is not what God had in mind. God says don't be like the religious churchy folk, but also don't be like the world when you pray. You with me? A Christian's concern in prayer should be God-centered in contrast to the self-centeredness of the hypocrites. Likewise, a Christian's prayer should be intelligent, expressed thoughtfully, and not mechanically. The difference in prayer is in that the God you are praying to, the hypocrites pray to the idol of themselves, for they want to be seen, and they want to be worshipped. But the Christian focuses on a heavenly father. The heathen prayers pray to another God, a false God, an idol, but we pray to the holy God who lives in heaven. Are you with me? I'm going to end with a few quotes on prayer, and then we're going to just reflect. Listen to this. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic in our lives. Wow. Can I say that again? Prayer is a central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. Watch this. The reason God answers prayer is because his children ask. Further, there is an intimacy between parents and children that has room for both seriousness and laughter. And I want you to know this. When God projects himself to be a father, he is calling us to him at an intimate level as if a child to their parents. And I want you to know in that intimacy as a child with their parents, in that intimacy there is seriousness and laughter. God loves to interact with his children. Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. Have you ever noticed that children ask for lunch? in utter confidence that it will be provided. Think about your own child. I'm hungry, mom, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And when they ask for it, they know that it's coming. They have no need to stash away today's sandwiches for fear that none will be available tomorrow. Parents, and I'm gonna add this, for even parents will stop eating so that their children can eat. As far as the kids are concerned, there's an endless supply of sandwiches, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. As far as you're concerned, it costs money. <laughs> but the kids just think it keeps coming. I remember my dad, he's the type of father, we'd go, to, we'd go and eat, and if I, I was probably eight years old, and I wanted a ribeye, with, get, let, this, let him get it. If I wanted salmon, I'd get it, right? I'm a spoiled brat, I know. Um, <laughs> thanks, Dad. Hi, Mom. Just get me back. But as far as we're concerned, there's this endless supply. Yeah. 
Now watch, children do not find it difficult or complicated to talk to their parents, nor do they feel embarrassed to bring the simplest needs to their parents' attention. Neither should we hesitate the simplest request confidently brought to the Father. Are you guys with me? When you pray, think about your children and think about how you respond to their needs, to their cries, to their wants, to their desires. Think about how you discipline them. Think about when you tell them no, you understand why. They may not get it. They may feel like the world's falling apart. They may be angry with you, but think about why you've done it. And when you enter into prayer and you say, our Father, you're understanding. Understanding. Let's bow our heads. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, visit www.inspiredchurches.com.